welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts the Restoration offers for today's world. We aim to feature a variety of guests with roots in the Restoration tradition from Community of Christ and our friends from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music has been provided by Ben Howington. You can find his music at mormonguitar.com. listeners. This is Blake Smith with a special request in honor of President Emeritus Wallace B. Smith, more affectionately known by many of us as Wally B. Though we are very saddened by his passing, there's so much to celebrate about his life and ministry. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to be doing a special series here at Project Zion Podcast, reposting a few past episodes that feature Wally B. and his family, as well as his ministry. And then, On October 10th, we'll feature a special episode called Remembering Wally B, Letters and Stories from the Field, and that's where we need your help. I'm asking that you send in brief stories or memories of your encounters with Wally B during his life and ministry. I've invited a couple of special guests to help me share those stories and memories from around the church. Ultimately, all the stories will be shared with the family. If you know someone who is not currently a Project Zion podcast listener but has a story to share, please invite them to submit their stories as well. All stories need to be submitted by email to projectzionpodcast at gmail.com. That's projectzionpodcast at gmail.com. And we need to receive those no later than Friday, October 6th. Any earlier would be even better. Thanks for being a Project Zion podcast listener and supporter. I look forward to receiving your stories. Now, settle in for an interview with Wally B. himself. This episode originally aired in July of 2016. Hello, everyone. Welcome to an episode of the Project Zion podcast. I'm Brittany Mangelson, and we are coming to you from Independence, Missouri. And today I have my husband and co-host Josh on. And we are delighted to bring you an interview with President Emeritus Wallace B. Smith. So thanks for coming, Wallace. Glad to be here. So for those of you that don't know, uh, Wallace was the president and prophet of the church who was the president at a very transitional time of the church and made some very significant changes um, and advancements to get the church where we are today. Um, but we're going to back up a little bit and maybe start at his childhood. He was the son of President W. Wallace Smith. Um, so I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. What was it like growing up um, in the home with, with your dad being the president of the church? Well, I had a happy childhood. Um, dad was not president of the church when I was a small child. He... Uh, um, had a wholesale hardware territory. He sold wholesale hardware in Northwest Missouri. We lived in St. Joseph, Missouri. And, um, uh, it was, uh, 
pretty typical childhood growing up in the 1930s. Um, it was a time of, of austerity, certainly. Uh, we were not poor, but we, we, uh, didn't have a lot of extra, uh, things as I was growing up. Uh, it, it wasn't until we moved out to Portland, Oregon at the beginning of World War II that, uh, uh dad began to uh, be more active in uh, in the church, and uh, uh, we uh, began to talk about uh, what his role might be after he finished working in the shipyards during World War II. He had been pastor of the uh, Portland, Oregon First Church uh, branch, and uh, at that time, my uncle... Uh, Israel Smith was president of the church and he had been, he, he had been, uh, aging and was certainly thinking about, um, continuing leadership in the church and I think began talking to my dad about that. So my early years and uh, growing up years were not, uh, particularly focused on um, future roles in the church. When I was in high school, uh, as I began to think about uh, careers, I had always thought about medicine as a career. And so uh, when I began to talk about that with my parents, they encouraged me to uh, to pursue that because uh, they realized that uh, that was certainly my first love. And uh, they did not say, oh, well, you better take religion courses or you better uh, get prepared to be a leader in the church because at that point, uh, that did not seem too likely. Now, of course, from time to time, as I was growing up, uh, people would sometimes say to me, well, you know, you're a smith and there might be a time when you would be uh, uh, called upon to assume leadership of the church, but that wasn't a common theme in my growing up years. Um, I was focused on being a doctor and uh, took Latin, took courses that I thought would prepare me for uh, a medical career, and that was certainly what I aimed for, and what I achieved, of course, I uh, went to medical school and became a doctor and, and was very, very happy pursuing a career in medicine. So did you work as a doctor in Portland, Oregon? No. Um, I graduated from the University of Kansas School of Medicine. And um, I graduated in 1954 during the Korean War. And at that time, all medical doctors uh, had to serve two years in the military. It was called the doctor draft law. And so I had been deferred for medical school. When I finished medical school and my internship, um, I was eligible to be drafted into the military. So I enlisted or I joined the Navy to keep from being drafted into the Army because um, I think I would have preferred the Navy. So um, I went in to the Navy Medical Corps 
in September of 1955 as part of the, as I say, Dr. Draft Law, and completed about two and a half, two years and eight months of active duty as a medical doctor. I, I took a course in aviation medicine and uh, uh, became a flight surgeon during the time I was in the, in the Navy. When I reported uh, aboard in Pensacola, Florida, they were sending a lot of the general medical officers to Guam with the fleet marines, and I didn't want to go to Guam. So I volunteered for aviation medicine, and and uh, that's how I became a flight surgeon. But following that, I went back into residency a year in internal medicine and three years in ophthalmology, and then finally um, took up a practice of ophthalmology in independence in 1962. That's kind of my medical career. Um, I practiced medicine until 1976. Um, during that time, as I lived in independence, I was active in the church, of course. I was an elder in the church and shortly became ordained as a high priest in the church and uh, was quite active in in uh, stake uh, roles during the time that I was in practice. I uh, was in the stake presidency uh, for a time, assistant pastor of several of the congregations in independence. And uh, during that time, I felt myself being drawn a little more strongly into uh, active participation in various roles in the church, served on the Standing High Council, and sensed in a way that uh, I was maybe getting groomed, you might say, for a, a larger role in the leadership of the church. But it wasn't really until uh, the fall of 1975 that, that uh, my dad approached me and indicated to me that he had a strong uh, light that I should be uh, preparing myself for full-time leadership in the church. Well, of course, that represented uh, quite a crossroads for me because I was very happy, as I say, practicing medicine. Felt like that was really my calling. But at the same time, I recognized my heritage, uh, the uh, obvious call that I had as as part of that heritage to uh, respond to uh, the leadings of the Spirit. And I told Dad that uh, it certainly was not a complete surprise uh, that I had sensed a calling in my own life, a, a, a shifting of emphasis perhaps. And uh, uh, as I prayed about it and uh, spent time reflecting on, on my future life, I realized that um, indeed, uh, God was calling me to accept uh, a different path for my life. And uh, at that point began the rather major transition that would be required to give up my practice, care for my patients, and be sure that they were um, uh, cared for by other competent uh, physicians. And, and at that point, affirmed to dad that I would accept a call as uh, what he called at that 
appoint president-designate because... Right, so you took a, two years to prepare for the actual call as a president-designate. Yes, yes. I, I had, of course, as a priesthood member, had uh, studied the scriptures and, and uh, felt like I understood um, church history and some general theological uh, background. But at the same time, I realized that I was not prepared uh, for a, ge- a general ministerial role. And so that two-year period was very important to me to prepare for um, ministerial leadership. And uh, fortunately, uh, that opportunity was provided me, and uh, I was able to enroll in several uh, theological courses at uh, one of the uh, seminaries in the Kansas City area, and um, took a course in New Testament, a course in Old Testament, in church history, general church history, uh, Christian church history. Um, um, this would have been what time frame? This would have been from 1976 to 1978. Um, it was during that time that several of the professors at at uh, St. Paul literally kind of opened up the top of my head and poured in about <laughs> a whole uh, master's in religion course for me in a, in about an 18-month period, and for which I was very grateful. They were very generous uh, and very helpful to me as I prepared for a, a leadership ministerial role. Well, thank you very much. I want to backtrack just a little bit and just ask you first, was it typical for the next president, once they knew they were receiving a call, to have taken time to prepare for it? Or was that something that you just specifically felt out personally for you? And then also, I just want to talk about your dad's presidency a bit. Okay. Well, there was um, some variation in the uh, preparation for leadership uh, in the past uh, presidents of the church. Joseph III, of course, had 54 years as president of the church, and uh, during that time uh, kind of set a course for the way the church would go. Uh, His son, Frederick, uh, served as his secretary and uh, served in the presidency of the church for a number of years. So he was certainly well prepared to assume leadership when Brother Joseph died in 1914. Um, Then his uh, brother, Israel, uh, had been serving both in the uh, presiding bishopric of the church and in the presidency uh, as a full-time minister for some time. So when Uncle Fred died, uh, Uncle Israel uh, was in a position to assume leadership uh, without too much of a leadership gap uh, or without a need for a lot of, of training because he had already been an active participant in the leadership of the church. You know, that was different when Israel, to your dad... Um, Dad, of course, was not as fully involved in the life of the church uh, as I indicated early on. Um, 
And Uncle Israel recognized that and felt that uh, that he needed to prepare uh, Dad to some extent. And, and that's when Dad was called to be an apostle and served for, um, I think it was about three years as an apostle and then went into the presidency of the church uh, in um, 1949, I think it was. I'd have to check the date to be sure. Uh, but then went into the presidency of the church and served until 1958 when Uncle Israel was killed in an auto accident and Dad um, assumed the presidency of the church. So he had a, a period of about eight years also in the presidency to to um, become acquainted with the leadership role. Right, and that really shook up the church to find out that Israel had passed away. Passed away so suddenly. Yes, it was it was a shock, certainly, and and uh, Uncle Israel was very much loved by the membership of the church and and uh, had provided a good um, healing kind of ministry for the church following the fairly turbulent years of Uncle Fred's presidency. Um, but, yeah, it was a shock. Uh, fortunately, he had left some written instructions for the church providing for a succession in leadership if he were to die, and uh, that was the basis upon which Dad uh, accepted the call uh, and and assumed the leadership of the church. So one uh, episode that we did with Andrew Bolton and Barb Walden was about the story of your dad at St. Paul and dealing and working with a bunch of theologians. And kind of this, what they coined new Mormon history was coming out, um, things like multiple versions of the first vision and, and kind of this story that everyone thought they knew so well, maybe it was a little bit trickier than what we thought. Um, and there was a moment where people turned to your father and said, well, what do we do if what the teachings of Jesus contradict the teachings of Joseph. Who do we follow, Joseph or Jesus? Um, and your dad said, well, we'd have to go with Jesus. And I guess there was a kind of a silent um, relief over the people in the room, and they knew that um, the direction that the church was going to go would be the right choice, which I think is a pretty radical moment, I would say, in RLDS history. Um, and one that was, you know, maybe built up over time, um, and continues to be explored. Um, but how, how was your perception in that whole transition of, um, maybe the story that you grew up hearing as a little boy, you know, was maybe different in reality of what happened and seeing your dad kind of be one of the, you know, poignant figures in the church's history to start leading the church through that journey? Well, I was not really in the midst of that discussion in the 1960s uh, when when all of this began to, to occur. The um, meetings with the uh, St. Paul seminarians and the, the um, shift in emphasis from... Uh, our history being our theology to a Christian understanding of theology uh, becoming the guiding emphasis 
uh, for the uh, for the leadership of the church. I uh, I was not really in on those discussions. I was aware of some of them, but in a busy medical practice, it it was not on the forefront of my thinking as it was with those who were involved in those discussions, the uh, Joint Council, uh, particularly apostles and presidency and, and bishopric. So um, uh, I must say it came as a bit of a surprise to me as I began to be phased in to that understanding to learn that what I understood was was the um, emphasis of the church and the history of the church was being explored and um, uh, examined and and perhaps even not altered so much as as uh, modified uh, to accommodate some understandings of uh, Christian theology as a whole. So, um, as I say, that was a surprise to me, and it took me some time to adapt and uh, kind of get on board, you might say, with what had been going on in the Joint Council uh, and in the awareness of some other members of the Church. It certainly was... Uh, was not an easy tra- transition for the church as a whole, uh, as you're probably aware. At this point, uh, there were some major battles, for instance, in the, uh, the development of the uh, church school curriculum. Um, as we tried to reflect more um, the teachings of Jesus and uh, the intersection module model between uh, where people meet. Um, the gospel in the midst of their everyday lives as uh, kind of separate and apart over in a a separate compartment where your religion exists sort of uh, apart from uh, the rest of your life. And this this was uh, difficult for many people in the church to accept um, because for so many years, the church was the gospel. Um, when persons preached, they preached the development of the church uh, from Joseph Smith forward, and what that meant uh, in in the development of their life, having accepted the restoration gospel, and that was not abandoned, but it certainly received a new direction during that 1960s period. And it it took a lot of adjustment. And some people, of course, never made the adjustment. They uh, were just not able to accept some of the new emphases that uh, began to be um, talked about in the church. Yeah. Well, because it sounds like the entire identity of the church switched, because we've heard it said before that the church was the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the tagline, not the Mormons. Not the Mormons, right. <laughs> um, but, but growing out of that and turning it into a more positive identity, um, and I, I guess especially when the church was sending missionaries to non-Christian nations, 
um, and really having to face that reality of, okay, this little story about a farm boy doesn't necessarily resonate. Yeah, they, they were not interested in, in that aspect of the gospel. Uh, people who'd never heard of Jesus Christ were not as receptive to a specific interpretation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so much as they were just learning about Jesus himself, you know, at the, uh, the Christian gospel. We had to start there before we could introduce the specifics of our denomination and its beliefs. And that certainly altered our, our missionary story. Um, at least it seemed to the Joint Council in the 1960s that that was necessary to do. Now, some churches, um, the Mormon church, for example, did not see that as a barrier. They went right ahead and told the story of the church as they knew it and believed it. And that started with the first vision, and it started with Joseph and his interpretation of Scripture. And and they, along with some other Christian churches, took the position, this is our story, um, this is what we're preaching. If that is meaningful to you, come with us. If it isn't, then we'll go elsewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a, um, an informed decision to adapt the gospel to be meaningful to non-Christian populations and, and was, you know, one approach out of several that uh, could have been taken, but it's the road that our church took. And I'm assuming, are you supportive of that? Do you think it was the the best approach? Oh, yes. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. I do, too. I know, um, not to speak for all Latter-day Seekers, but I think a fair amount of us who have found a home in Community of Christ can really um, admire and appreciate the journey that the church took. And I kind of always say that um, the overall journey that the church has taken kind of parallels our personal journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's been really beneficial to find a home that um, where people can relate to mm-hmm. us. And we've all gone through this deconstructing um, of what the restoration is and what it means and, right. and why does it still have value. So. Right. So if they do find value in restoration theology, uh, a lot of seekers are be more appreciative of non-literal approaches or more nuanced approaches. Mm-hmm. So I just want to talk a little bit about your own personal beliefs through this time. What, what are your beliefs have been growing up in the RLDS church and how would that have shifted when you went through St. Paul's seminary? You said that is like taking the top off and filling your head full of stuff. And how would have <laughs> so that have changed the emphasis yeah. for you leading up into becoming the president prophet of the church? Yeah, well, um, I guess I would say that uh, I had, along with many other members of the church, a fairly simple faith. Uh, a fairly literal faith uh, that uh, uh, was, I guess, uninformed, you might say. Um, and so to learn that uh, that uh, the Gospels were not literally 
written down by the apostles uh, whose names were affixed to the Gospels was uh, a new information to me. And so I had to work through that, um, realize that uh, the Christian Gospel is a melange of many different ideas and thoughts, um, pasted together, you might say, to uh, form the New Testament, uh, emphasized a certain way to to uh, combat uh, uh, Gnosticism. Uh, you know, all of those um, details of the development of, of the Christian faith were new to me and fascinating, um, but kind of um, flew in the face, you might say, of a literal understanding of the gospel, even the gospel as Joseph Smith understood it. Uh, so that was, as I say, both liberating and at the same time a little bit disturbing until I was able to work through that and uh, come out the other side with um, something, an understanding of the gospel that, that made sense to me and I realized that it, it it always did make sense to me to to have a an expanded understanding of of scripture, for instance, and to understand that that the Christian faith evolved over a long period of time and with many starts and stops and reverses. So um, as I worked through that, I came to a a feeling of of uh, satisfaction, uh, of it making sense, and uh, felt good about where I came out, you might say, uh, in my working through my personal theology. So, what year did you become prophet president? 1978. 1978, okay. Mm -hmm. So, when you became prophet president of the church, um, did you have an idea of the direction that you were going to help lead the church in. Um, I'm specifically thinking of the temple, this beautiful building that we're sitting in, as well as um, ordaining women. So essentially 156. Um, I'd like to know maybe the background of that for you on a personal level and uh, what led up to those things and those discussions that you were having um, to produce the document. Well, when I became president, I talked with my counselors and uh, some other uh, members of the 12 and said, you know, with a new presidency, we kind of need a new direction. We need an, an emphasis for this period of time. Uh, so let's, let's kind of have a theme. We talked about a theme and realized that the church had gone through a period of transition and uh, upgrading of its theology. And so we said, let's, I'm not sure just who came up with the phrase, but let's, let's um, have an emphasis of that the faith to grow. And we felt that that had two dimensions to it. Uh, both a vertical dimension, the faith to grow spiritually, as well as the faith to grow numerically in light of new understandings and new emphases that uh, we felt were 
an outgrowth of the of the uh, studies of the 1960s. So uh, we launched the Faith to Grow theme in the in the World Conference of 1980. And throughout the church, we asked people to uh, consider the uh, the four C's of our new emphasis, which uh, would be based on the ministry of Christ. And we kind of went from there. And for the whole decade of the 80s, we looked forward to building around that theme of the faith to grow. And that went fine for the first few years. Uh, people, I'd say, embraced that theme and um, the leadership of the church and the missionaries uh, spoke of of um, the four C's of calling and conveying. And um, um, I, can't, <laughs> I can't remember all the four C's, calling, conveying. Well, it's been a long time ago now since we we used that theme, but um, uh, they embraced it. But also during that time, other things were happening in society as a whole. And the church, of course, was not apart from society, but part of society. And as you are well aware, the era of feminism was beginning to emerge and... Um, Women in the church were beginning to talk about the aspects of feminism and how that affected their role as members of the church. Discussions were being had about was it appropriate for women to speak from the pulpit? Uh, what roles were appropriate for women within the um, work of the church? Did it just involve potluck suppers and and um, teaching Sunday school class, or were there other possibilities for leadership roles? And if so, in what context? Uh, there were certainly women in the forefront of that um, discussion, one of them being Marge Drow, uh, along with uh, some others. And so from, well, from the 1970s on, uh, these were prominent discussions in the um, among church members and church leaders. Um, so when you say that it wasn't apart from society, it was the early 1980s that the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, was being right. presented to be passed, which it never did pass. Never did pass, but... But that was what was that on was the was a major theme right. in, in society at that time and certainly reflected in the thinking of, of some of the women in the church. I must say it wasn't all women of the church. Many who believe very strictly that a woman's role was secondary, should never be aspiring to leadership or certainly not to priesthood. But there was a, a significant movement within the church, within our church, our LDS church at that time, to expand the roles of women. And, uh, in fact, the First Presidency um, published a paper called The Role of Women, and in that we spoke of the appropriateness of women speaking uh, from the pulpit, for instance, um, of um, uh, doing workshops, uh, 
teaching, adult classes, things that now seem rather uh, ridiculous to think about because it's it's such a part of our understanding and our practice now. But at that time, it was very much uh, the concern of many people in the church. Come, so I think our, our paper on the role of women was released at the 1982 World Conference. And there was also a, a resolution passed at the conference for the First Presidency to study, further study the role of women uh, up to and including priesthood in the church. And so certainly the subject was out there and it was being discussed and there was a great deal of thought given to it. Uh, coming up to the 1984 conference, we, the First Presidency, were seeking to be responsive to that resolution that called for a study to be made by the First Presidency. And as part of that study, we actually uh, did a widespread poll throughout the church, both of priesthood members and of uh, non-priesthood members, general membership of the church. And it was interesting, as that poll began to be analyzed and uh, brought into focus, it uh, appeared that there was about a 60-40 split um, against priesthood membership for women as opposed to for priesthood membership for women. 60 against 44, 40 um, approving. So that was an interesting insight for us to have at that point regarding how the membership felt, generally speaking. Um, but I also was doing a great deal of, of, uh, studying in my own mind about this question. And, um, over a period of time, several months, um, leading up to the conference of 1984, I, of course, studied, prayed, prepared to uh, bring what I felt would be inspired instruction to the church. And more and more, it became impressed upon me that uh, it was time for um, women to have access to priesthood membership in the church. I particularly did not want the impression of the church to be that we were responding to opinion polls for our leadership positions in the church. So um, the fact that a, a poll was released in January of 1984 showing that there was actually a majority in opposition to what I was coming more and more to believe was was the direction the church should go was additional burden for me, but at the same time, um, I felt that that I needed to proceed in that direction. Uh, I was aware of all of the background and history of priesthood in the church, the uh, the feeling that many had of not only the sacredness of priesthood, but the eternal nature of priesthood and the fact that uh, the long 
history and a tradition of the church was uh, a male priesthood. But I also felt that it was compatible with our belief in the equality of all creation that women ought to be able to have access to the same privileges and responsibilities as men as it relates to leadership roles in the church. So with that background and with that growing impression of the Spirit on on uh, my part, I felt called to present Section 156 to the church. And um, this involved, of course, not only the um, sections on uh, priesthood membership, but also uh, started to be made toward preparing for building a temple. As you, as you know, this was a watershed moment for the church. Uh, many people rejoiced. Many people uh, despaired because they felt this was not in, in conformance with previous scripture, with previous understandings, traditions, um, and it led to a, a serious schism in the church, as you are no doubt aware, a schism which has persisted, and uh, that's to my... To this day, we just drove past the building, we're like, oh, that's where that church the is. The church, <laughs> just right across the street. We're yeah, pretty right, sure that's right one of those here. schisms. Uh, but, but there's, you know, there... There's, to this day, there's those feelings, and it's to my regret that had to occur, but at the same time, I think it did have to occur for our church to move forward and be the church that I felt it was called to be in today's world. So, um, did you have any inkling, anticipation for what was going to happen as far as? I guess I, I did not. Um, I did not realize the depth uh, to which some people would be forced to to follow. Um, the um, my hope was that um, that it was something that would take a lot of adjustment, that many people would be uncomfortable, but that over time the majority of people would come to accept it, and um, uh, it, I think, surprised me to a certain extent the degree to which many people refused to accept that direction for the church and, in fact, uh, withdrew their, uh, their support and, in many cases, their membership from the church. It was, um, to my lasting regret, but still, I felt that was what we were called to do and be. Yeah. Well, it's hard when these are family members, these are members of your congregation, these are people you've known for decades, if not your whole life. Yes. And suddenly there's that big... You can't talk about something that is a major part of your life. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it... I mean, so you have daughters and a wife um, who I'm assuming have benefited from, you know, priesthood ministry, women in the priesthood. Um, and yeah, it, it becomes a part of you. And yet it's something that 
you yeah, love fact, so dearly. In fact, there were those who, who, among the dissidents, who said, oh, well, he's just doing that so that his daughters can be in line for leadership in the church. Well, of course, I was the farthest. Yeah. Uh, that's thing. one of the LDS tropes that I heard growing up. Is that, That's the only reason why you did it, is yeah. so you could ordain your... Yeah, and if that were the case, to the president it, it is didn't. what they said of his life, but that didn't happen. So. <laughs> yeah, it didn't happen. No, so. it didn't happen. And um, uh, my wife is a priesthood member, and one of my daughters is, but the other two are not, and um, that's fine. And uh, um, we went on from there. Yeah. <clears throat> so, how was your wife in all of this? Was she? I mean. Were you having conversations with her and getting some of her feedback, or was the idea of Not women too in much. ministerial? Um, she always made a point not to insert herself influencer. Uh, in in uh, um, my struggles and, and uh, contemplations because she felt that that uh, it was not her place to try and influence me. Um, she was very supportive after the fact and happy, but had made a point of not being involved in discussions or really, you know, doing the shoulder shrugs and eye winks and leanings that you might um, anticipate uh, that one might do because she is very sensitive to just such impressions on the part of other people, um, fearing that she might be an influence. So she bent over backwards, really, to try not to be an influence. So this might be too personal, and you can tell me that that's the case, but I do want to ask you about the revelatory process. So which sections of the Doctrine and Covenants did you present, other than 156, and then including section 156, how would you say that the revelatory process worked for you? And how would you try not to in inject your own personal agenda with that process? Well, right off the top, you realize that that's impossible not to inject yourself into the process. You're a person, after all. And whatever comes from from divinity is filtered through a person. And so there's there's always going to be a human element. It was certainly a learning process for me. Um, my first experience in 1978, you know, I about January is when I began to really think seriously about what was I going to present to the conferences as my first message to the church. So was there an expectation to present words of counsel at every conference? Um, I would say, yes, there would be an expectation. It was not always the case, but certainly the majority of the time there was um, a message brought to the church at the time of conference simply because that's the time when the delegates were assembled to consider a document, and and uh, uh, so it was just simply convenient. But 
yes, I'd say there would be an expectation among many of the church membership. Uh, and so on that basis, I was certainly concerned as a new leader to want to sort of set a tone, speak to the, to the people, give them some indication of, of my um, leadership style and, and uh, my, my leadership position. I started to say along about January, uh, I began to think, okay, now, how does this work? Um, and I began to try to withdraw myself uh, at times and, and uh, get quiet, pray, study, contemplate, and wait, and uh, nothing happened. Uh, I was not sure what I was waiting for, but uh, I certainly did not feel inspired beyond just uh, what normal thought processes might provide. And um, this continued, um, and I, we got closer to conference, and I got more desperate and, and uh, began to think, well, maybe there's just nothing there. Maybe I'm on my own. But um, at the same time, the process of thinking about the needs of the church, thinking about and examining where the church was in relation to where we felt the church needed to be, uh, where we wanted to to go. Um, my my own thought processes began to to coalesce into certain ideas, and um, those ideas became more fixed in my mind, and finally. I got to the point where I was able to say, okay, Lord, this is where I am. Now you're going to have to help me at this point. Is this, is this truly where I should be going? Can you help me at this point? What else do I need to do? What is the process at this point? And of course, it's at that point that you have to interpret your feelings, but the feeling becomes stronger and stronger that Yes, this is this is what needs to be. Uh, for me, there was never any dream. There was never any voice uh, of affirmation. It was just simply a stronger and stronger feeling within myself that this is this is where we needed to be, and this is where I needed to go. And unless I hear very strongly to the contrary, this is where I'm going. And that that has was pretty much the revelatory process for me. It's very difficult to describe. And in fact, most of the prophecies of the church have not haven't tried to describe it with any with any detail because it's it's not amenable to description or to uh to explanation so much as it is just simply a sense of part of your being. But that was a learning process for me and one that never got any easier. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. A lot, of, a lot of pressure, great blessing, but at the same time, um, quite a burden because we might just talk for a minute about the prophetic role. It's a real 
dichotomy in a way, because the prophetic role is is in essence taking the people from where they are to where they ought to be under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And um, this sometimes takes you in directions that you know the people don't want to go, that will lead to problems for the church, lead to financial difficulties, and and will make people, many people, unhappy. Well, that conflicts with your priestly role. Um, and you want, you want to be a, a good leader. You want to be well-liked. You want to be someone who is thought well of. And you want to be able to represent the Spirit to the people in a way that it will be meaningful and acceptable to them. But at the same time, here's this prophetic push saying, never mind all of that. Here's where you need to go. And, and that's, that's the burden. Yeah. It's the burden of any leadership, of course, from the lowliest pastor in the smallest branch all the way up to the leadership of the church. That's the burden of prophetic leadership. But it's there and has to be listened to and has to be considered. And, uh, you know, that's something that every leader has to face. Yeah. So with that, how how does a leader keep from letting, I guess, that power go to their head? Or how do they keep themselves in check? That's the other burden of leadership. And it's a, it's a constant, um, it's a constant, um, tendency or temptation. Um, it's an almost unbearable temptation at times. But that's what I've always said is an important check and balance for our church is that it is not an infallible leadership. The World Conference has the final say about any prophetic instruction. And uh, people have asked me sometimes, what would you do if the World Conference said, no, we're not going to accept this? Right. Well, you'd do what you had to do. You would ask them to consider it, take time with it, continue to pray about it. But if it was the will of the people that it not be accepted, belief of our church is that would be the final final word. So um, it's a, it's a, such a delicate balance between that, the role of the leadership and the role of the common consent of the people. And it's something that's hard for some people to understand or to think about, but it's there and it's important um, check and balance, in my opinion. Thank you. One of the things about the restoration is we're a temple building people. And so one of the things that Joseph Smith did in every area that he moved to, it seemed like, was build a new temple. So when he was in Kirtland, they built the Kirtland Temple, and then they built one also in Nauvoo. Um, up until Section 156, Kirtland was the temple that was owned from within the RLDS church. Was there an expectation that you would build another temple? And then when that did come forth, was there any setbacks because of the strife between 
ordaining women? Was there any financial setbacks to building the temple? And did that hinder any of the excitement to build another temple at that time? Well, it's interesting. Um, of course, there was. there's always been an expectation on the part of people in the RLDS church that, that there would be a temple in Independence. They weren't quite sure what was supposed to happen in that temple. They weren't quite sure the purpose of it, but they knew that Joseph had indicated that, that there should be at least one temple, maybe many temples. I don't know if we've ever seen the, the plot of uh, the 24 temples right. that he laid out. But so one way or another, there was a feeling among the people in the RLDS church that there should be a temple in Independence. So um, that was not a, a difficult proposition for many people in the church to to accept and get behind and support. On the other hand, there were some people, particularly what you might call the liberal element in the church, who, who were afraid that simply giving in to the idea of a temple and independence was a backward step, a step more toward the old gospel as a, opposed to the new um, approach the church was taking in its theology and, and gospel message. So, um, and that, interestingly enough, I was not aware of until after we had built the temple when some people were bold enough to tell me that this was a concern among some of my liberal friends <laughs> in the church. But um, it was, oddly enough, in, the, in, the, in spite of the schism that occurred after 1984, when we got down to raising the funds for the temple, that was, I won't say it was simple, but it was much less difficult than you might imagine in a small church to raise $50 million so that you could build a temple with cash and have $15 million left over for an endowment. That says there were a lot of people in the church who were very supportive of building a temple. As I say, they weren't quite sure what what ought to take place in the temple, weren't sure what the purpose of it was, but they wanted a temple in independence. And so it was gratifying to see the response of the people and uh, to see the support that was forthcoming when we did get to the point where we wanted to start building. I've heard that some of the thought of when a temple was built is that when Christ would come back, um, he would come to the temple. And so maybe that's where, when you were talking about the liberal side of the church, was thinking maybe it was a step back in the forward-thinking theology. Um, and you also said that there was kind of some confusion of what would happen in the temple. Um, and I know that from people that we interact with, um, there's a lot of curiosity about what does happen yeah. in the community of Christ temple. So yeah. if you could describe it, um, I guess, how did the purpose of the temple develop and how involved were you in that process? And then just explain what happens here. Well, I was certainly very much involved in the process. I had to write the paper that described the purpose of the temple. <laughs> um, but from almost the beginning, 
we all said, this is going to be an open temple. Mm-hmm. It's not for secret purposes. Uh, this is a temple that will inspire people. It's a temple to come to, but more importantly, it's a temple to go out from, mm-hmm. and to go out in mission from having been inspired by the beauty, by the spirit that is present in the temple. You go out from the temple in mission to the world. So uh, that was our emphasis from the beginning. Um, we felt that it was important to have a theme that uh, would be descriptive of of the the spirit's presence in the temple. And so that's why we said it was be dedicated to the pursuit of peace because Christ's spirit is a spirit of peace, uh, a spirit of love. And that's what we wanted our temple to to be um, symbolic of. So as pursuit of peace, um, really emulating Jesus' ministry was for teaching, for inspiration for ministry, for uh, inspiration for mission, um, these were the things that Jesus preached, and these were the things that we wanted to model and symbolize in our temple. So this was the process we went through as we began to put together the purpose of our temple. So um, that that was kind of the the process we went through. Process of choosing the design was also interesting because. We, at least I felt it was interesting because we did not want just a Greek temple. We didn't want a, just an office building. We didn't want something that was just even Western because we, we were an international church and we wanted the temple to be in some way, um, recognizable by all cultures and, and all people. So, as we thought about that and talked about it our, and began to have discussions with our architect, very early on he began to, to talk about um, a spiral design. And we, of course, had never even considered a spiral design, but we began to, to think about it, began to talk about what things a spiral symbolizes, you know, and, and it became more and more evident to us that this might be very well uh, a good symbol for us and something that would be recognizable, uh, something that occurs in nature, something that uh, all cultures might be able to relate to rather than, than a Western steel and concrete and glass uh, edifice. Uh, and so that was really the basis on which we went forward with a spiral design. And as it turned out, it was a difficult design both to to build and to um, to work with acoustically and, and uh, uh, even visually because a, a round surface is much more reflective and you get dead spots and live spots off of a round surface. Uh, surface, and so we had to be very careful in uh, designing for the acoustics in in the uh, sanctuary, and um, also because 
the uh, elevation changed as you proceed up a spiral. Uh, we had to decide how we were going to deal with that, and that led to the evolution of the worshiper's path and uh, uh, also to the continuing evolution out, going out from the sanctuary into another level and out the doors into the world plaza, again uh, symbolizing going forth into the world, leaving the temple in mission. So those were all things that, that went into our process as we as we went went through the design of the temple. So by what time was it dedicated? Uh, it was dedicated in 1994. It was actually finished in the summer of 1992, but we didn't want to hold the dedication until the next World Conference so that more people would be here and be available to participate in the dedication service. So that's why we waited until 1994. Okay. So how long was your presidency? It was from 1978 until... 1996. 1996. And that, the the end of your presidency is also something that you're known for, I guess. Um, Very different from every other (laughs) prophet president. So it had been tradition to keep the president, um, the line of presidency in the Smith family. Um, But not only that, but until death. Yes. 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 Until death. Um, So, yeah. Talk about that. Okay. The uh, service until death, of course, was uh, abrogated in dad's transition in in leadership because he resigned. He didn't die. In office, okay, he turned it over to me, uh, and he became president emeritus. So that um, precedent was already established with your dad, okay. But the transition out of the Smith family was certainly new with me, and I I just felt like it was timely to begin thinking about that process. Uh, again, it involved struggles of the spirit because uh, I I wanted to be responsive to uh, to the divine mind, but at the same time um, wanted to open up the possibility of leadership to other able people, other qualified people. Um, besides members of the Smith family. So I just, I'd been, of course, thinking about that for a number of years, but did finally respond to leadings of the Spirit in opening up the uh, ministry of leadership to other persons other than members of the Smith family in my call of leadership to... to, uh, President McMurray. So, yes, that was uh, another breach of precedent that I was responsible for. And are you satisfied with that? Do you think that that was a... Oh, absolutely. Um, Not that there weren't other members of the Smith family who could very well have assumed leadership, Mm -hmm. but um, I just felt that it, it was important to, as I say, open up the leadership of the church to other able people. Yeah. 
Right, which almost never happens within organizations. Like once it gets going a certain way, it's very hard to relinquish a certain power or dynasty, Yeah, as people would say. So what was going through your mind? Was there something that made you uncomfortable with the idea of dynasty within the Smith family line? Um, no, I wouldn't say uncomfortable. Um, I would say that there were, I felt, perhaps times when um, there might have been other possibilities for leadership in the church. But at the same time, I'm not being critical of past leadership of the church. I felt, I, I feel that all those who served, including members of the Smith family, were very able and, and brought good leadership to the church. But um, as I say, I, I just felt that we were unnecessarily limiting ourselves mm. by by confining it to one family. I mean, you could the same could be said with priesthood in the ordination of women. Yes. You're only choosing from 50% yes. of a talented pool, and you might as well include. Yeah. And again, that, that is limiting ourselves in an unnecessary way. Yeah. Well, and there's nothing barring uh, members of the Smith family of Someday no. becoming president of the church again. Certainly or, not. Uh, male or female, really. Right. So, yeah, it's fascinating. Right. So I guess really quick, we won't be too much longer, but wrapping up post-presidency, um, another big change that has happened with the church um, that people were curious about your take on, um, the name change to Community of Christ. Um, taking on, again, as I mentioned kind of earlier, maybe a more positive identity instead of the tagline, not the Mormons. Um, what were, what were your reflections on that or your thoughts, um, looking back on that moment of time? Well, I was very supportive of the, uh, effort to come up with a, a new name. I, I don't know. I, I think I may have been more sensitive than many people to that long name, um, the fact that from our beginnings, we were an opposition church. We were opposed to something. We were opposed to the Mormon church and their interpretation of the Restoration Gospel. We were saying, we're not the Mormons. That, that, was, our, that was our message for all those years. We were the one true church. Uh, just as the Mormons believe they were the one true church, can't be two one true churches. <laughs> um, but that had always been a bit of a sticking point for me personally. Um, I grew up in the church, um, was uh, proud of my heritage in the church, uh, was not embarrassed by my church, but I, at the same time, I felt that we could do better. Mm. At the same time, we had come to a point where we were no longer at war with the Mormon church. Uh, we'd, we'd gotten past those days. We had gone our way. They had gone their way. We were cordial in our relationships with one another. And, and it, it just seemed as though it was time to stop defining ourselves as to what we were not or what we were opposed to, mm. because that time was really kind of past. 
Um, so as we began to think, what are, what are our core beliefs? We went back to what we believed was our most important core belief, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what better way to symbolize that core belief and to identify ourselves as the community of Christ. At the same time, we wanted to preserve the idea of community, of the, the Zionic vision, because that is basic to who we are and what we are. So we felt community and Christ was the perfect blend, and that was kind of how we arrived at that name. And I think that that it has proven to be uh, inspirational to us. It proven to be uh, a good symbol for us uh, going forward from uh, the time of of the name change. Really. So another story that I heard um, moving forward in years um, is the national conference that the church just held. Uh, discussing the issue of LGBT ordination and marriage in uh, America. And we were just talking to Michelle McGrath yesterday, and she said that you were invited to pray at that service and that there was a lot of angst with the community and no one really knew what direction it was going to take. Um, but she has heard, and I've heard this from several people, that when you prayed at that service, um, there seemed to be just a calm spirit, I guess, um, hearing your voice and knowing that you had taken the church through very, very difficult times before, um, that that was kind of, it was a witness to people and they knew in that moment that whatever was going to happen, it was going to be okay. So I don't know if you were aware of that reaction to your prayer. Um, but I guess my question with that would be, um, what what is your relationship with the church now, and and do you still feel like um, you have some sort of I don't know what word influence to use. yeah influence or or you know spirit about you that you're able to um, bring together some understanding and camaraderie maybe when hard questions arise. Well, I suppose there is that element. Uh, and perhaps even more than I'm aware of. Uh, I've tried very hard in my role as president emeritus not to be an influence. Um, you can only have one captain of the ship. You can only have one prophet. And so I made it very clear both to uh, Grant McMurray and to Steve Veazey that uh, they would never see me shaking my head. They'd never see me um, giving a nudge or raising an eyebrow. Uh, that was not my role, and I would reject that role if someone tried to thrust it upon me. So um, that has been my my very clear understanding with the leaders of the church. And at the same time, as you say, there's bound to be whatever people read into um, my participation and in whatever way I participate, uh, either support or opposition, depending on what I'm doing. Uh, and I 
I can't help that any more than anyone else can. Yeah. But I, I am very purposefully making an effort not to influence. My prayer at that service was for unity and understanding and um, mutual support. And I, I tried to be neutral in my language, um, but simply my being there was a message, mm -hmm. of course, and um, that's unavoidable. The only way I would avoid that message was not to uh, not to show up, yeah. not to be there, yeah. and that would have been a message. Yeah, you're right. So um, it's inevitable that there are those circumstances. Um, but at the same time, I, I try my best not to be an overt influence, and I can avoid it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So just to wrap up, I want to ask a twofold question of if you could go back, would you do anything differently during your time as prophet president of the church? And then to date, you've had 20 years as president emeritus. Have you, we just mentioned one thing, have you been satisfied with where the church is going and what vision do you see and what are your hopes for the church going forward? Well, as, as to what I might do differently, I, I suppose you know, everyone has second thoughts uh, and look back on their life decisions, uh, perhaps in ways that uh, are informed by consequences. But I must say that I I have felt that I did my best and was as responsible to the leadings of the Spirit as I knew how to be. And um, I don't know of anything that I would do differently, might do it in a different way, looking back with hindsight might do some things a different way, but I guess I would say that for the most part, I feel that I, I did the best I could and that, that I would probably do the same thing again as far as I had this insight to do what I did. As far as, as far as the uh, direction the church is, is uh, taking, I'm certainly supportive of President Vesey and all of the leadership of the church. I think they um, are wrestling with questions and and burdens that uh, that every denomination is is wrestling with right now. Some um, perhaps doing better with it than others. Some doing differently than we are. Um, but I I go back to to the concept and core belief of the worth of all persons. And and I, I just don't see how we can come out anyplace else than where we are going and still adhere to that basic principle that all people are of worth in the sight of God and therefore have equal um, claim on God's spirit and God's love and uh, God's mercy and grace, I don't know where you can be anywhere else and still be in the, the Christian belief system. So, you know, 
I, I think it's, it's tough sledding ahead for all organized religion. We see that already, and I think that will continue because of the secularization of society in general, the dumbing down of society in some ways. Um, I, I regret to see that, but I think it's part of, of the future. Uh, we need to continue to try to provide leadership, whatever leadership we can. We, we need to reach out to those people who are, um, like-minded, who see our values and, and, uh, support our values. We, we would hope that there would be more and more of those people, but honestly, I think we have to face the fact that there are all, there are going to be struggles for organized religion in general, and we need to gird ourselves for those struggles and do the best we can in the face of, of a very secular society. So one thing that I didn't get to ask that I forgot, um, really quick, we talk about the restoration and I think a lot of us thought maybe that it was Christ's original church being restored now. Um, how would you say the word restoration has evolved or what meaning do you find in restoration? What's, what's the purpose for you with that word now? Well, I think humankind is always in a, a state of rebellion against the good, against God and the idea of love and mercy. And I think we're always in need of a restoration to God's presence. We tend so much to put ourselves at the center of our concerns, the center of our universe. We rebel against God being the center. We want to put ourselves at the center. I think the whole idea of restoration is to restore God to the center of our lives and the center of our concerns, the center of our church. Uh, and that fits right in with our history and Joseph's concerns of putting God once more at the center of a rebellious society. We're still fighting that same rebellion against God. We need restoration every day. We need to turn once more to the purposes of God. And I think that's what restoration is all about. Thank you. That was awesome. Like that. I do too. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to sit down with you and speak with you. Yeah, thanks. This was... Well, it's been a pleasure. This was kind of a dream of mine to get to do, and I didn't necessarily think it was going to happen, so it happened. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank well, you, thank you. I appreciate your you're doing this. It's a, it's a big job and, and, uh, you're to be commended for making the effort to, to get points of view and let people, uh, be exposed to them. Yeah. Thanks again.
Project Zion is sponsored by the Latter-day Seekers team from Community of Christ. The views expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official views of the Latter-day Seekers team or of Community of Christ. <laughs> 